This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to the latest episode of Money and Markets. This week, we've had lots of economic data, so we'll be picking that apart, looking at what today's inflation figures mean and why wages just aren't keeping up with the rising cost of living. Joining me today is Danny Hewson, who will also be looking at the latest markets news. And there's a lot, including Microsoft's mega move towards gaming supremacy, Unilever's bid for GlaxoSmithKline, and Amazon's 11th hour reverse on its ban on Visa cards. We'll also be looking at the slew of pensions announcements that have come out this week with Tom Selby joining us to explain them all. And we'll have our latest in our Round the World investing segment, this time looking at the UK. And we've also got the lovely Jenny Owen on to tell us what the nation's ideal job looks like. So let's start with the big news of today, um, which is Wednesday when we're recording, which is the latest inflation figures. So these inflation figures used to be something that got a few headlines, but people weren't that interested in. But now we're seeing such soaring inflation levels, everyone is much more interested in what the latest figures show. So today's announcement applies to December. It shows inflation levels in December, and it shows that they stood at a record-breaking 5.4% for the CPI measure of inflation. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken about the fact that we've got soaring food costs and, of course, the energy bill crisis, both things that are driving up prices at their fastest rate in, can you believe, almost 30 years, which is squeezing living standards. Um, it's the highest annual reading since the measure of inflation was introduced in 1997, though, of course, you know, there were significantly higher price rises in the 70s, 80s and early 90s when the RPI, the retail price index measure, was used. But for people that are really feeling the pinch of those price rises, it's going to be little comfort what measure people are using. And the big thing, Laura, is that although 5.4% is huge, it's bang on really where analysts were expecting it to come in. And it doesn't go anywhere near the levels a lot of people say that we've got coming down the line in, in March, April time, because of course, energy bills although they've been a huge part of the story right now, until we get that hike in the price cap, which is coming down the line to us in April, they're not making a huge dent at the moment. That is coming from all the other things that we're finding are increasingly costing us more when we go shopping, things that we just can't avoid. And it's a massive issue for households. And I think what we also need to bear in mind is that that does happen the energy price cap changes in april but also in april what we have is an increase to the national minimum wage which is going to push up the cost for businesses we also have an increase in uh, national insurance which means a bigger cost for employers and for employees um and so what we're looking at is a fairly awful april and honestly I'm regretting calling my child April because it's not really a great month. 
<laughs> it's not. But what's really uh, worrying is that, of course, when you think about particularly energy costs, you know, a lot of the companies that buy our energy from the wholesale market, which has surged 330%, I mean, that figure is just bonkers. Well, a lot of these suppliers, they hedge things. So they're buying six to nine months in advance. So, you know, when we hit our kettle, you've got to remember that the price that we're paying is six to nine months behind what we should be paying right now. So, of course, although we are anticipating some serious pain in April, if you called your daughter, you know, September, you might also be having issues because <laughs> I think that we are still going to be in a world of pain come then, particularly when we're talking about energy costs. And when you look at the rising price of oil and all those geopolitical tensions that are just adding to it. And obviously, you can't really talk about inflation without talking about what the Bank of England is going to do. So we're not that far away from the next interest rate decision. Um, so by some weird quirk, the Bank of England does not meet in January. So we had an interest rate rise in December. The next one is in February, but we're only a couple of weeks away from that now. Um, and what we're seeing markets expecting now off the back of these inflation figures is another interest rate hike in February. But obviously, as we have seen before, markets expectations and what the Bank of England actually do don't necessarily always tally. And I'm going to get on to how markets reacted to today's figures as we're recording on Monday. But what's also interesting, something the Bank of England will have been looking very closely at is we had jobs figures out earlier this week, and that included data on wage inflation. So we had separate official figures issued showing that average pay rises are now failing to keep up with the rise in the cost of living. Of course, we've been talking about the fact that pay has been going up and up and up since uh, summer 2020. But in November, for the first time, regular pay, excluding bonuses and adjusted for inflation, fell 1% in November compared with the same month in the previous year. Now, you know, people on low incomes are going to be hit particularly hard by the squeeze in living standards because those hikes are coming in on stuff that people have to buy, food, power, transport, and particularly those on modest income, you know, they, they've not seen wages rise, not really growing any faster than prices over the last decade. So, you know, at this point, things are going to be very painful. And as you were saying, you know, the Bank of England, when it meets, it's going to be looking at whether or not this momentum, this wage spiral has been curtailed because this could lead to the worst of all scenarios, stagflation. The expectation higher prices will be sticky, stick around, leading to you know job seekers demanding higher wages. And certainly when you look at how many vacancies that they're out there at the moment, it's a record number and loads of employers desperate to recruit, loads of people desperate to move jobs. And that could set up this really tricky period of time when people are asking for more money and companies are saying, well, we're going to have to pay it. And certainly High Street Retailer Next said that it faces 5.4% wage inflation. And when we had uh, data out by Goldman Sachs earlier this week, it signaled that one of the big costs that had been a factor in them missing their uh, revenue expectations were wages. And you've also got to factor in a hefty increase in the national minimum wage, which will also push things up a notch. So how did markets react to all of that news? 
Um, well, markets pretty much expected 5.4%. And because it pretty much was bang on the nose of what they expected, just slightly more than they had expected, it, it didn't make much of an impact. The FTSE 100, FTSE 250 barely budged on the news. In fact, you know, most of this week, investors have been really focused on what's been going on in the US. So we've seen some real weakness in tech stocks, largely because of concern about imminent action from the Federal Reserve, obviously, to uh, deal with inflation there. But we've also had some real strength from house builders, from retailers, from oil producers, as we were saying, which has really helped to shore things up. And as we were talking about oil, Brent crude continues to charge ahead 0.4% gain, taking it to 87.84 dollars per barrel. And there's been lots of talk again that we could see a hundred dollars per barrel coming down the tracks towards us. So let's look at the rest of the market's news this week. Let's start with the whopping bid that Microsoft has made for Game Maker Activism Blizzard, which is an interesting name. It doesn't trip off the tongue particularly (laughs) easy, does it? However, the games that it makes, although you might not have heard of Activism Blizzard, you will have heard of Call of Duty, Warcraft, Overwatch, and one I'm particularly fond of, Candy Crush Saga. (laughs) Now, the deal, I mean, the figure is eye-watering, Laura. We are talking $68.7 billion, 50.5 billion pounds. It makes it Microsoft's biggest ever buyout and the largest deal in gaming history. Now, how did markets react to it? Well, shares in Activism Blizzard, unsurprisingly, surged on the news. Microsoft dipped a bit, possibly from what's going on generally with all the concern about tech stocks, growth stocks, and what might happen as the Fed tightens up their monetary policy. But also maybe from the price tag, which valued Activism shares at a massive premium to where it closed on Friday. But there's a lot of issues that have been pulling down the price of shares on activism of late, Uh, a lot of internal issues, issues that they say they're working out. And though the Microsoft boss, Satya Nadella, didn't talk about those issues directly, he did make a point to say that culture was very important. But this really does pin Microsoft's colours to the mast. You know, it has made huge advances under Nadella on its business offer, This puts the consumer offer on the same sort of trajectory. Think about Microsoft's Xbox gaming brand, its big competition, Sony PlayStation. What if titles like the hugely popular Call of Duty are only available on Microsoft going forward? You see, this changes the playing field and it would turn Microsoft into the world's third biggest gaming company by revenue behind China's Tencent and Sony, as I said, making a major shift for the industry. Now, the big question here, though, is what will regulators think of this move at a time, of course, when regulators are taking a really good hard look at big tech's dominance? And continuing the week of big and dramatic bids, we've had a bid from Unilever for GlaxoSmithKline's consumer healthcare arm, haven't we? Yeah, we were just talking about the business Unilever last week, of course, after well-respected fund manager Terry Smith declared that it had lost the plot over its focus on ESG issues. Well, 
It has been all business since then. But a £50 billion bid to take over the consumer product arm of GlaxoSmithKline was turned down. And the potential Unilever might now try to up its bid hasn't gone down well with investors. Shares have been down. There's also been a warning this week that any deal is likely to add significantly to Unilever's debt pile, and that could trigger a downgrade to its credit rating. Now, this warning came from ratings agency Fitch, which also said, you know, there are a lot of moving parts here that could change if Unilever maybe looks at the dividend payments or maybe decides to sell off some other parts of the business, that could make a big difference, as could the final price tag it might be forced to pay. Because health and beauty is huge business, particularly following the pandemic and with inflation. Something businesses like Unilever are seriously thinking about right now will mitigating that by expanding their business empire could be a really good call because it would add to its existing range, would also move into over-the-counter medicine and with the NHS and health services right across the globe struggling to deal with everyday demands while coming back from COVID backlogs, there is huge scope here. But that's something that GSK knows all too well. If you don't know some of the brands, Panadol, Sensodyne, and it's already looking to demerge the consumer healthcare business bit from the whole this year. The spin-off being chaired by former Tesco boss, Sir Dave Lewis, and analysts are saying that GSK should hold out for a higher offer and there is likely to be no shortage of interested parties. And sticking with big price tags for health and beauty businesses, we've got the battle for British favourite Boots with rumours of a £10 billion bid this week. Yeah, Boots looks good for many of the same reasons, of course, that uh, Unilever is looking at GSK. The rumour is that the new owners of Asda are ready to place the first bid, but not likely to be the last. Remember, of course, Boots, the chemist at the moment owned by Walgreens, the US company, they've said the for sale sign is up. And it really couldn't be more perfect timing because after years of decline, questions about the state of the high street, the last couple of years actually have made the chemist relevant again with a capital R. Sales were up over the last quarter, and as I've said, health has become fashionable. Now, Boots has a lot of city centre stores, hundreds, some of which might be seen as a bit of an albatross, but they've also got pharmacy licences that go with them, and that is worth a great deal indeed. And think about you know, the likes of Asda, how they might be able to integrate that into their stores as well. Tesco, well, the bosses there were asked outright if they had any interest acquiring the firm during their trading update. It would be a good fit. It would also potentially be a good fit for Morrison's new blood at the helm there. And we do know that, obviously, private equity suitors are lining up to snap up a bargain with plenty of potential. As for the consumer, what might it mean for them? Well, chances are, you know, as with all these kind of things, we could see some store closures, but there would also be an overhaul of services, potentially some money going into it. And some of the stores are, are really looking a little jaded, sort of shadows of their former self. And also, don't forget, Amazon has been making moves into the health sector, flexing its muscles in the U.S., it could also be linked to this. So we could be in for a really interesting couple of months. You know, last year we were talking about supermarkets. 
We had two supermarkets change hands. We could be looking at the same thing for consumer products and chemists. And you mentioned Amazon there, which beautifully segues into the very public spat that Amazon and Visa have been having. So um, Amazon had previously said that as of today, 19th of January, um, it was going to ban the use of all Visa cards on its website, meaning that anyone who wanted to buy something on Amazon would need to be using a MasterCard. Uh, Amazon said that this was because the fees that it's charged by Visa for the cards uh, were far too high. However, at the 11th hour, it has cancelled that ban. Um, It means that people can continue using Visa cards on the website, um, and it suggests that Amazon and Visa are in talks about those payment costs. So um, Visa has defended its position and say that its charges are less than 0.1% of the value purchased. But clearly, Amazon thinks that is still too high. A lot of money involved. I know certainly um, some of my friends have uh, looked into getting a, uh, a MasterCard in order to be able to use credit cards on the Amazon website because they want the protection. So uh, it's going to be fascinating to see exactly what deal is struck. Now we've got the latest in our Round the World Investing segment, which started last week, and it is worth revisiting if you missed that episode. This week, we're staying close to home and looking at the UK market and the different investment options here. Dan Coatsworth and Tom Sieber also speak to 91 fund manager Simon Glazier about his thoughts on the UK market and the stocks catching his eye. In the previous edition of the podcast, we started a four-part series on investing in different parts of the world, beginning with the US. Today's episode will explore the UK, trying to address some of the preconceptions that investors have about companies on this market and why performance has generally lagged quite a few other regions. So first up, for those who aren't familiar with how it works, there is two main UK stock market indices which act as benchmarks for performance. So the main one is the FTSE 100, and that is an index of the 100 largest companies by market value listed on the London Stock Exchange. So when you hear people on the news talking about UK stocks, they will inevitably be talking about the FTSE 100. The other main index is the FTSE 250, which is the next 250 companies by market value below the FTSE 100. These are generally referred to as mid-cap stocks, whereas the FTSE 100 has large caps, or sometimes they're called blue chips. Approximately three quarters of the companies in the FTSE 100 generate revenue overseas. So the index is not a good um, indicator for the UK economy. The FTSE 250 is more of a domestic barometer, but even then, only half of its companies generate sales in the UK. So the UK market, as represented by the FTSE 100, has lagged various parts of the world over the past 5, 10 and 20 years. A lot of people believe that's down to it containing boring companies and having barely any technology firms there. Now, the UK market is probably best represented by banks, oil and gas producers, miners and tobacco manufacturers because the world is moving on. Now, technology is at the heart of everything. So therefore, investors will be looking for tech stocks and the UK market doesn't really have a lot of big companies in this area. If you think about it, you're shifting to renewable energy and away from fossil fuels. So that's led quite a few people to turn their back on oil and gas companies as as investments. And if you think smoking is dying out as well, people are thinking more about their health. And tobacco companies haven't seen the level of growth with vaping that they originally expected. 
We're going to debate this issue with our guest fund manager in a second, but it's worth pointing out that investors could still have made some spectacular gains over the years by picking the right UK stocks. So it would be wrong to ignore the UK from an investment perspective. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'll give you a good example. So in the FTSE 100, the best performing share over the past decade is a company that sells trainers and tracksuits. Now, that's proof that you don't need to be a tech stock to thrive. So JD Sports has a total return of 2,950% over the past 10 years. So that's a term. You know, total return is a term to describe share price gains or losses and dividends. And to, to put that into some context, £1,000 invested in JD Sports 10 years ago would now be worth £30,500. Yeah, and other big hitters in the FTSE 100 include Ashstead, which rents out equipment to construction companies. Over 10 years, a £1,000 investment in its shares would now be worth £27,000. And £1,000 in cardboard box manufacturer, Smurfit Kappa, a decade ago, would now be worth £11,400. Just goes to show that boring can be beautiful. Yes, I think sort of concerns about the impact of Brexit have put off many overseas investors from putting money into UK stocks. And that's I think that is a key reason why UK stocks have been out of favour in the past five years or so, in addition to perhaps stronger levels of earnings growth being found in other regions like the US. And of course, we, we talked as well about the, the, the tech factor that lots of people have been drawn to technology companies and the UK is just not really well represented in this area. But you know, I, I do think that we've come to the point where valuations are so much cheaper in the UK versus the US that lots of UK listed companies are now become takeover targets. And we've seen a lot of M&A action, mergers and acquisitions in 2021. And I do think this trend will continue this year as well. So with that in mind, and to get an insight into how our manager views the UK, Dan met up with Simon Glazier just before Christmas. He runs the 91 UK Alpha Fund, which looks for good stocks on the UK market. The UK stock market has a reputation for having a lot of old economy businesses and not much technology. And do you think that's a fair description? Uh, and if so, why do so few technology companies actually list on the UK stock market these days? I think it's a completely fair description. And it's interesting that Lord Hill um, undertook a review earlier this year to try and make some improvements to the UK market. For example, having dual share structures, such that means entrepreneurs can keep more of their business, which is very important often to them. Um, making the prospectuses less complicated um, and, and, and other suggestions, which I think will hopefully attract more businesses. Because I read a statistic recently, I think less than 5% of IPOs in the last five years have actually been in London. Mm. And despite the, you know, we're one of the largest, deepest capital markets in the world. So from my perspective, I want to be able to invest my clients' money in good, growing technology businesses. So you know, the more we can do to encourage that, the better. Is you think it's partly to, if companies that seem to list in America get quite a high valuation. I wonder if US investors are prepared to pay a high price to, to access these tech names. Yeah, that is, that is definitely the case. Um, but we are in a certain stage of the cycle. And so one has to be careful that, you know, at certain points in time, that may not be the most beneficial thing for our clients. But um, having said that, you know, I own some companies I think have wonderful technology, GB Group, which is big in fraud and identity, verif identity verification. I wouldn't class it as a cheap company. It's on a significant you know, multiple of earnings. And so the market here um, will value those companies if they're high, high enough quality. Well, I think the defining characteristic of my fund is I'm very diversified. Mm. So I'm prepared to look at anything if I think that ultimately it's going to make my clients money. Um, but what we really look for is companies that have great business models that can grow and compound. So it could be anything from building materials companies like CRH or Sigma Rock, 
you know, who are doing very well at the moment, particularly I think as uh, we come out of the pandemic and we're going to see more road building and fiscal spending coming through. Um, but on the other end of the scale, you know, a business I own is Essential, which is a um, consumer data play that basically has some very, very interesting technology that sits on top of the likes of Walmart and Amazon helping large companies um, manage themselves on these what effectively are auction places. So I'm prepared to look at anything. And the great thing is in the UK, we do have a wide variety of industries we can invest in. You've got a big holding in Next. And, you know, lots of people sort of say that's the envy of the retail sector. They seem to do everything right. Um, you know, they've still got their shops. They're still relevant, even in you know, this modern yeah. era. And, of course, they're doing well online. So what do you really like about Next? Well, the thing I like the most is their chief exec, Simon Wolfson, who is, I think, is one of the most impressive CEOs that I've come across. But what they've done is they've really invested ahead of the curve online. I mean, they have over 8 million active consumers online at the moment. And I think the one thing that people do not realise fully is if you go onto the Next website, they have put 320 external brands on their website in the last two years alone. So actually, you can buy clothes from Reese, you can buy Bobby Brown lipstick, you can buy all sorts of products on the Next website. So yes, they have their own products. They've got what's called Label, which is other people's products. And they've also just announced, you know, they ha they're providing effectively a total solution. So the likes of Reese now, Next will do everything for them, from fulfillment to deliveries to um, managing all their stock. So Next is actually not becoming a pure retailer. It's actually becoming a platform for retail to take on the likes of Amazon to a degree, actually. So that's what's really very interesting about that business. And it's a bit like the THG, the Hut Group, their ingenuity platform, trying to help sort of brands sell direct to consumers. I guess this is, Next is doing something, it's almost the same, isn't it? So It is very much so, but what, but what is interesting, I think, for what Next does, is that I've spoken to many of the companies and brands who are on that platform, and I said, well, why are you selling? Why are you, Ted Baker, selling your clothes via Next's website? Mm. And they're very honest. They say, because if I sell a shirt via the Next website and someone sends it back to me, on my own platform, it costs me almost double than what it does via Next because they've got the economies of scale. Mm. So interestingly, not only is it making Next more profitable, it's actually making their competitors more profitable as well. It's a, it's a very interesting dynamic. Mm. So you've got some stakes in some of the smaller companies that you find on the UK stock market, so Fevertree, and, and you mentioned Essential as well. Now, do you hold... Um, sort of mid small cap stocks because actually they, you'll get better earnings growth than some of the bigger companies. But equally, you, you've got large cap stocks in your portfolio. Are they because they're they cheap and perhaps more reliable earnings there? Yeah, you know, I um, I slightly disagree to the extent that people always think that because a company's smaller, it has higher growth actually. Yeah. <laughs> and also, people don't forget if you become a large business, you probably become large for a reason, which is probably you've done something right and you built out. You know, your barriers to entry and you built a decent business. So, you know, I own a company called Experian, which is, you know, has a, is a basically big data business. It holds credit data on people globally. Um, that business, you know, grows at a fairly good lick. Um, and it's, you know, one of the biggest companies in the UK market. So I wouldn't always say that big companies grow slower. And also, I do think that I prefer owning companies that have less business risk. So a company like Experian that's globally diversified, cash generative, relatively defensive, actually, is more attractive to me than sometimes smaller businesses. But on the other hand, you're right. You know, um, from small acorns, mighty oaks can grow. And you know, there are some really interesting small businesses. And you mentioned a few of them. And you know, I followed the, the travails of Fever Tree from the very beginning when they floated. And that's a really interesting business now, growing very quickly in the US, diversifying itself. And I think a you know, very attractive growth proposition that we can access. Yeah. And so what's your outlook for 2022? Are you quite 
optimistic or are you sort of a bit, bit more nervous about um, what the, what's going to happen? Or? I'm very nervous, I have to be honest okay. with you. And I'm, I'm not always one of these fund managers who's glass half full all the time. I think that the, the, sort of the, the mantra at the moment of the sunny uplands, that post-pandemic world, I just don't see that. I think that a lot of the issues we had prior to the pandemic are still very much in place and actually have been accelerated. So you know, fiscal deficits, governments have a lot more debt than they did a few years ago, which is why we're seeing, for example, in the UK, tax rises coming through, you know, national insurance. And consumers, yes, they're recovering their spending post-pandemic, but a lot of people are going to save that money. And it's, it's a much more difficult environment to a degree. Plus, on top of that, all the risks around inflation, etc. So I'm, I am, I think companies are in a good place. They've got good balance sheets, but I am nervously, I'm cautiously nervous to a degree, rather than cautiously optimistic. And you only look at the growth forecast for the UK. We're not looking at three, four percent growth forecast. We're looking at one to two at best. Mm. So I would just have some caution, and I, so I'm looking for companies I think that can survive in that in a more difficult environment where there is economic uncertainty, geopolitical. You know, risk and, you know, st and structural uncertainty as well. Yeah. Well, Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Not at all. There are various ways to get exposure to the UK market. First of all, you can pick individual stocks which either trade on London's main markets, AIM markets or the Aquas Exchange. The UK stock market is open for trading between 8am and 4.30pm Monday to Friday. Alternatively, you could buy an exchange-traded fund which tracks the performance of one of the key indices, such as the FTSE 100, although it's worth noting that you don't tend to get ETS which track the AIM market. And if you're happy to let someone else do the stock picking, there are plenty of actively managed UK-focused funds and investment trusts. So on next week's podcast, we'll be chatting about investing in mainland Europe and we're going to get the views of Sam Morse from Fidelity about what's in store for this market in 2022. So the pensions industry has come alive this week. It feels like there's been a flood of announcements from the government that's going to impact anyone with a pension. So AJ Bell's Tom Selby, our very own pensions guru, has been reading all of the documents so you don't have to. And he is here to tell us what we need to know. So, Tom, there's been quite a few different announcements. I know this is going to be hard, but I'm going to ask you to pick your favourite first, which was oh, the biggest that is, announcement. That is tricky. Well, let's let's start with the one that's actually going to come into play. So we've had confirmation from the government that new stronger nudge guidance rules are going to come into force later this year. So these are reforms that have been introduced because there's concern that not enough people are seeking guidance from pension-wise, so that's the government-backed guidance service, or indeed seeking regulated advice before accessing their retirement pot. So around one in seven people at the moment seek a guidance appointment before accessing their pension for the first time. And the concern here is that it creates a potential risk that people might not have the right information to hand when they're making retirement decisions, and it might lead to more people making bad decisions if they don't have that information, which they may be able to get from a guidance session. So, for example, they might buy the wrong type of annuity. They might take too much money in drawdown and, and overpay task, tax as well as risking, of course, running out of money. Or they, or they might invest in a way that doesn't suit their risk appetite. So these new rules will mean that providers will not only have to point out the existence of PensionWise, the guidance service at the moment, but they'll also have to offer to facilitate facilitate the booking of an appointment for people and people will need to opt out of that appointment if they don't want to do it. So the aim is to 
boost the take-up of guidance and hopefully leave us with a, a more informed population when people are making choices about what to do with their retirement incomes. So hopefully that should be a good thing, although we'll see exactly what impact it has on, on guidance take-up. Um, the second, So when does that come well, into place? Uh, so it's later this year, middle, middle of this year, so it'll be in the next few months. Okay, great stuff. And so then what about the, the next announcement? So we had a, a big work and pensions committee report, which generated quite a lot of headlines. So the, these committees produce recommendations for government rather than um, bringing forward new rules or, or, or legislation that are going to immediately impact on people's lives. But what they say tends to be taken quite quite seriously by the FCA um, and, and, and government as well. So it's worth taking note of some of the main recommendations. So no sooner have we had the stronger nudge to guidance being introduced and the Work and Pensions Committee has suggested we might need to go further. So the committee wants the government to look into automatically enrolling people into guidance, either at the the point that they access um, their pension or at age 50. So it wants the government to do some research to see whether or not that would have a big impact on the take-up of, of guidance and also to look at any potential negative consequences of of going down that road. Um, the committee says so that... So would that it, mean that um, people have to go to PensionWise before they're allowed to access so their it, So we, we'd, we would have to wait and see as to what that was going to look like in practice. What it, what it might mean would be that um, you wouldn't be able to access your pension pot potentially um, until you had chosen to opt out of that guidance appointment. Now, the challenge with that, of course, is that lots of people at the point of access in particular uh, are really focused on getting their, their tax-free cash, and they might be frustrated if they're, if they're told that they, um, that, they can't, that they can't get that tax-free cash until they've been to an appointment or been through the process of opting out of that, of that appointment. So it, it's, what, it's one, to, one to keep an eye on. Um, we, don't, we don't know for sure whether or not that reform is going to be introduced. As I say, it's just a recommendation from the committee at this stage, but they say that they they want the government to be more ambitious in terms of the number of people who take advice and guidance, and they want there to be a target of 60% of people receiving either regular advice, advice or seeking guidance before they access their pensions. So one one to keep an eye on. Also, various other recommendations from, from the committee, which I, I won't go into in too much detail, but they want to they want, they want the government to think more about the complexity that um, changes in the tax system, ha- uh, the, the impact of complexity changes in the tax system have on, on people saving for retirement. They want them to look at the advice guidance boundary. So at the moment, a lot of pension providers, for example, would like to provide more support to people um, who are accessing their pot as well as saving for retirement, but are worried about straying into the into providing regulated advice, which lots of providers don't want to do. So they want them to look at that. Um, and they they also want to look at this idea of decoupling tax-free cash. Um, so just briefly, that mean, at the moment, if you when you want to take your 25% tax-free cash, you also need to choose a retirement income route. So for example, going into drawdown or, or buying a new, an annuity with the rest of your pension pot. Um, so the the committees asked the, asked the, the FCA to, to review whether or not that should remain the case. So they think that there potentially could be a case for you being able to take your tax-free cash, but not making a decision with the rest of your pension pot um it's an interesting one i'm not i'm not convinced to be honest of the of the benefits of that so at the moment you can take your 25 percent tax-free cash you can put the rest of your pot into drawdown but you don't actually have to do anything with that money 
in drawdown. So it's not like you're having to access the rest of it. For example, in order to get your tax free cash, you can keep it invested in all the same things and pay all the same costs and charges. It's just in a way for lots of people, it's just a change to the underlying mechanics, meaning that you can now take an income from your fund. You don't necessarily have to do it though. So one that I suspect is going to be debated over, over the next 12 months or so. So a big old to-do list for the government then, basically. Yes, exactly. And that's what work and pensions committees are there for. And to, to be fair to them, um, previous work and pensions committees have tended to to come forward with very radical proposals without necessarily asking government or regulators to, to test whether those radical proposals would actually work or help people. Whereas was this, this committee report, while it's got a lot of a lot of recommendations and a large to-do list, as, as, as you say, they, they've at least suggested on the major things that the government should kind of road test some of these ideas to make sure that, A, they will work to help people save more, make better, better retirement decisions, but B, won't have any significant unintended consequences, which, of course, is, is often the case with, with a lot of these measures. Um, so that, I mean, that's a lot already, but was there anything else from the pensions world that we should know about this week? Yeah, really busy start to the year. But I'd, I'd say one, one other thing I would I would pick out um, will be the latest figures figures on the overtaxation of flexible withdrawals. So um, eight hundred thirty five million pounds has now been repaid to savers overtaxed on their first pension withdrawal since the the pension freedoms were introduced in twenty fifteen. So this is the issue where uh, this issue should only affect those taking a single withdrawal in the tax year. So when you make your first withdrawal, um, an emergency tax code will be applied to that withdrawal. So we're just talking about withdrawals here in drawdown or ad hoc lump sums. So it shouldn't affect things like, it doesn't affect things like annuities or taking an income from a defined benefit scheme. But when you take your first withdrawal, HMRC um, require, usually requires a month one emergency tax code to be applied. And that means that your normal tax allowances are divided by 12 and then applied to that withdrawal, which means you might end up paying thousands of pounds more in tax than you would expect to, depending on course on the size of the, of the withdrawal. If you're taking a, a regular income, then it should be fine. It should, your, your tax code should get sorted out automatically and you'll be put in the right position. But if you're just taking one withdrawal in a tax year, then the, the only way to guarantee you'll get your money back reasonably quickly is to fill out one of three different forms based on how you've accessed your money. If you fill out those forms, then you'll get your money back within 30 days. But if you if you don't, then you may need to wait until the end of the tax year to get your money back. So it's one of those annoying things within the pension system that doesn't really work with the with the pension freedoms where the tax tax framework and the pensions framework don't quite quite marry up it's very frustrating we've we've pushed hmrc before to address it but it's been nearly nearly seven years now and nothing nothing's happened so it feels like something that we're just unfortunately having to to live with and it's probably worth mentioning as well that tom's written a lot of articles on either shares magazine or on the uinvest website that that explains in detail more how that process works, and also if you've been overtaxed, how you can reclaim that money. So it's worth looking at that if you've fallen foul of that. But thanks very much, Tom. Thank you. Laura, also this week, we have seen a long-awaited crackdown on cryptocurrency advertising, haven't we? Yes, so we've finally seen some action on cryptocurrency adverts. So currently, these adverts aren't regulated, um, whereas if you were to 
advertise for a different type of investment that would have to go um, be approved by the FCA and go through an approval process by then. For cryptocurrency, until now, it's been a bit of a wild west. Um, The Advertising Standards Agency has been trying to crack down on some adverts, and it's been doing that by looking at individual adverts and banning specific ones where it feels like they break rules. Clearly, that is a much more arduous process. And also, by the time they ban that, often people will have seen the adverts um, and the harm will have been done. Now, what the government's saying, the Treasury has said that it wants the FCA, the regulator, to um, regulate these adverts. What that means is that we will see more robust adverts, more along the lines of what we would see for other financial products. Um, And it means things like risk warnings, um, clearly displaying the risk involved in cryptocurrencies. Um, All of these things will be put front and centre. So if we look at some of the crypto ads that have been banned at the moment, by the Advertising Standards Agency. Some of them talk about potential returns, um, very high returns, eight, nine, 10% returns, but they don't mention anywhere the risk that's involved, the fact that you might lose all of your money. Um, so this is a good move. It's, it will hopefully help to protect um, more consumers. It will help to make them more aware of the risks involved in cryptocurrency before they buy. However, the area that it won't crack down on is the actual scams. And now lots of scammers have jumped on the back of massive rises in cryptocurrency um, and are using that to lure people in. um, And then they just steal their money rather than there being a legitimate cryptocurrency investment or um, scheme behind it. These people likely aren't going to care that advertising rules have got stricter because they're already operating outside the law anyway. Now, the new year is a time when lots of people look for a new job. And we had those wage figures that we talked about earlier showing how much everyone's pay is rising. But Jenny is here to tell us what the ideal job looks like. Jen, I think my vote would be for dogs in the office. Well, you've got a vote seconded here. Um, But January is a recruiter's busy period. And I'm sure a lot of Money and Markets listeners have been thinking about how their current career compares to their dream job. Um, Apparently, the UK's perfect job involves a 26-hour week and a salary of £44,000 with regular pay rises and reviews, a day off for your birthday, and of course, free brews. Oh, nice. I know, that's that's top of my list, free brews. Um, Other important features of the fantasy job include a well-organized workspace, a good location and friendly colleagues with relatively high up on the list is being able to have a pint with your manager now and then. The environment you work in was hotly discussed, um, nice office decor, clean desks and decent storage amongst the ideals noted. A 17 minute commute, very specific to the office, (laughs) Um, a nice view from the office window and 29 days of holiday were also on the list. Um, My favourite bit is the inclusion of duvet days, which are unscheduled days off just because you need to unwind. That sounds like a lovely idea if you ask me. Yeah, I'll take that over dogs in the office. Well, I suppose when you work from home, though, you could theoretically decide that you were just going to stay in your bed all day. Are you recording? Is it because you're recording this from your bed, Danny? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is actually my day off, so I did think about doing just that. But no, the sun Mm. is shining, so I'm sitting with the sun streaming in with a nice view from the window. Nice. Very nice. 
That is everything for this week. Thanks again for joining us. Do rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast and join us next week for that segment on Europe with Sam Morse from Fidelity, as well as all the latest markets and personal finance news. Thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.